0: One Hope Church Well, Merry Christmas to each of you. It's almost here. Thank you for being here this morning and uh, thank you for the privilege of Sharing the word. Uh, We are in the Gospel of Luke, as we usually are on Lord's Day morning, and uh, we'll be looking at the great uh, event of the Transfiguration of Jesus on the Mount, and uh, as we look at that passage from Luke chapter 9, I'd like to uh, begin by reading the passage and uh, starting with some of the verses that uh, Chet brought to us last week. Verses uh, 23 through 36 will be our text, uh, particularly 28 through 36. So let's... uh, Let's begin by reading that together. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. (coughs) But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up. Onto the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. The Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious words. Uh, Let's have a word of prayer as we continue. Our dear God and heavenly Father, uh, as we... uh, Give thanks this morning, and as we realize that you are awesome and uh, great and greatly to be praised, uh, we do come humbly before you, Lord, and ask that you would enlighten our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we might uh, understand the things that have been uh, said in your word, and Lord, that uh, these things might sink deeply into our hearts and that you would change our lives for good and, and bless our lives for the good of others. For we ask these blessings in Jesus' most worthy and precious name. Amen. Now, the first uh, section that we looked at uh, verses, uh, in verses uh, 23 and up to the point where we talked about the uh, transfiguration, we saw that the necessity, there was a necessity to take up the cross and follow Jesus. In verse 23 and 24, we see a contrast of desires. Uh, in verse 23, he said, and he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. True discipleship, as we know, begins... With the forgiveness of sins and the new life that is brought into us by God through the Holy Spirit and it's a product of our faith in the Savior who, who, who died and rose again. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a fact that happens when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this overwhelming desire for Jesus is the grand motivation, then, for the life of discipleship, uh, the following after Jesus and doing His will and seeking to glorify Him. And the disciple, it says here, must be willing to follow Jesus even to death. That's the idea of the cross. Uh, we're to be ready, if it need be, to die for Jesus. Now, in verse 24, it says, there's a different desire. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So what a tremendous contrast between these two desires. And uh, it goes on to say, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so uh, despite what the world might say to you, being a true disciple is not throwing your life away, it's gaining your life in the most profound and eternal sense. For what profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? The idea of lostness there. Now, notice the connection between this concept of discipleship and prophecy. Discipleship and prophecy are associated together. Verse 26. And whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers and and of the holy angels So <clears throat> there is a, a a sense in which not being a true disciple is 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 disastrous The idea of being ashamed of Jesus is Uh, not to identify with him uh, through faith. We have to be willing to identify with Jesus through faith. And my words would speak uh, of someone not embracing his message. And that message, of course, is not only the words that he spoke, but the words that, uh, through the Spirit of God, his apostles spoke uh, in the New Testament. He says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, uh, it was mentioned uh, by Chet last time, there are many erroneous interpretations of this, and I don't like to go through erroneous interpretations. It's not helpful to anybody. Uh, But clearly, what is meant by this is found in the event that follows. Jesus is transfigured on the mount. And this uh, uh, fact of the transfiguration is really a a future, uh, it's a preview of the future, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as King of Kings and the, the thought of his return to earth which, in the fullness of time, will mean a tremendous judgment upon this earth, and the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus in this earth, and that will come when He is present here, ruling as King. Now, the uh, the thought in verse twenty-eight is uh, develops this this whole thing as we as we read on. Now it came to pass after eight days, about eight days after these sayings, that he took Peter, John, and James, and went up to the mountain to pray. Now you'll notice that Luke uses the the phrase "about eight days," and so he's he's counting the day that this is spoken and the day that it is fulfilled. So, uh, the first and last days are 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 counted as is a custom in counting in the New Testament. Then he took Peter, John, and James and went up onto the mountain to pray. We know uh, from Mark eight twenty seven that he is near Mount uh, Hermon. And that's a, a mountain that was quite quite a good mountain. That was 9,000 feet tall and, uh, and only about 12, uh, 12 miles away from uh, Caesarea Philippi, where, where they were, that, that vicinity. And so a, a ridge or a spur on that mountain would have been a, an obvious uh, uh, possibility for the the, the transfiguration event. Uh, notice, uh, too, that uh, this uh, transfiguration that we're going to be looking at was both a preview of the fulfillment uh, of the of the uh, prophecies concerning the kingdom and the coming of Christ in glory, but it's also a guarantee of it because it reinforces the Old Testament prophecies that spoke of these things. Later on, <clears throat> uh, Peter, in his uh, second epistle, speaks of what happened here, and i will like just to read those verses where. He, Uh, very quickly here. Uh, First, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19. Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. There is that uh, extra confirmation, that guarantee, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts. So we, we have uh, Peter's view of this tremendous thing, looking back on it when he wrote his second epistle. Now, as they're on the mount, uh, Peter, uh, John, and James, they behold two men talking with him, who were Moses and Elijah. Now, we're not told exactly why Moses and Elijah were selected by God to meet with Jesus. But both of these uh, men uh, left this world under unusual circumstances, shall we say. Uh, Remember, Elijah was translated into heaven without dying in 2 Kings chapter 2. And Moses died, and God buried Moses. So that's Deuteronomy 34. So both uh, were uh, unusual circumstances. Now, Moses may be said to represent the law. When we think of the books of Moses, we're thinking of uh, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books, and there the law is a, a really substantial part of it. Now, Elijah may be said to represent the prophets in Jewish thinking. So you have the law and the prophets. Both were mediators of God's rule upon the earth. And the presence of these two men attested to the fact that Jesus was Israel's Messiah and uh, that he was the one that was the fulfillment of all those prophecies in the law and in the prophets in the whole of the Old Testament. Now, when you think about it, uh, these men, despite all that they have seen and uh, and experienced, uh, I'm talking of, of Moses and Elijah, still the fact that they would be talking to their Messiah, the Son of God, about his decease at Jerusalem must have been an awesome kind of thing for them as they uh, uh, experienced it along, of course, with... Uh, the apostles that were there. Now, verse 31 tells us that, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, it's really quite interesting, isn't it, that uh, Moses, who led Israel out of Egypt in what we call the Exodus, speaks with Jesus about his Exodus. His departure out of this world. The two uh, aspects here. This could come, of course, would come through the death of Christ, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. That was the exodus of Jesus. And the similarity between the events that we have here, exodus out of Egypt and Jesus leaving this world, uh, suggests that Christ's redeemed people would follow him just like the people followed Moses out of Egypt and toward the promised land. So uh, the believer in Jesus is on his way uh, to the promised land of heaven. And uh, notice, too, that this was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is very key here. Uh, It would not do to have these things fulfilled in any other place. Now, verse 32 says, But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Now, it may have been a blessing that they were sleepy at first because of all this uh, emotional uh, shock, but when they got fully awake, it said, They saw his glory, the glory of Jesus, and the two that stood with him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Apparently, Peter wanted to prolong this uh, incredible experience, this wonderful experience. And Peter suggests three shelters or tents or booths be built uh, to commemorate this and to uh, delay the, the, the departure of, the, of Moses and Elijah. Mark 9, uh, verse 6 adds, Because he did, know, did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Uh, we, we use the expression, scared out of our wits sometimes. And uh, I guess this was the feeling of the, uh, the apostles. They were greatly afraid. This was an overwhelming experience. And it was hard to see uh, you know, what was going to happen uh, next. So he suggests these tabernacles or booths. Now, it's interesting that these structures were associated with the Old Testament Feast of Tabernacles, or booths. The Feast of Tabernacles looks back to the exodus from Egypt, according to uh, Leviticus 23.43. It also looks forward to Christ's future kingdom on earth. And remember that after the judgment that God brings upon the earth, the seven years of tribulation and the final judgment uh, uh, of those days, there will be a requirement for the nations to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, This is recorded in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14 and verse 16, where it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is going to be a continually, continual yearly event in the millennial kingdom, in the thousand-year earthly reign of Christ, and it will in, uh, be a part of that which the nations uh, that survive the judgment take part in as they uh, come up uh, to Jerusalem, to keep this feast and to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, this seems to tie in with this whole experience of the transfiguration, which is a preview of the coming king and uh, the kingdom that he was going to to establish with power. As it says in Mark 9, verse 1, Mark 9, 1, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. So the, the, uh, these words are added as you go into this same experience, the same event in the Gospel of Mark. The kingdom of God present with power. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. Now, in the Bible, you know you'll remember that a cloud is often associated with God's great and glorious presence. Matthew tells us it was a bright cloud in uh, in uh, this in this circumstance, manifesting God's glory, of course, and it uh, was one from which the voice of God came, which caused them to fall on their faces and to be greatly afraid, according to Matthew 17, 6. Now, it came to pass that uh, as these things were happening, the voice came from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, in the fuller statement of Matthew seventeen five, and the father said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, hear him. Well, that gives us a little fuller picture. The sonship of Jesus, it must be said, set him far above all others. The sonship of Jesus set him above Moses and Elijah in a way that uh, would be hard to to explain. It's... uh, Now, of course, in the Bible, you have a, the sonship of, of Jesus Christ as the son of God. That's his eternal sonship. But here we have perhaps the, the messianic sonship, which was spoken of also in the New Testament. And that, too, put him far above these uh, great men of the old covenant, Moses and Elijah. So the Father's words tell us to whom we should pay attention. We're not to pay attention to any other human being, biblical or otherwise. They might dress in holy garments, so to speak. They aren't very holy, actually. And uh, say that they are to be followed or uh, speak words that the people are supposed to accept as true, but we are to follow the words of Jesus. The ultimate revelation of God's truth. And so, the Son of God was the channel for God's uh, final uh, revelation, and the book of Hebrews puts it this way, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through through whom also he made the world's, who being the brightness of his glory, the Father's glory, and the express image of his substance or essence, and beholding, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the Son of God is God's final revelation that he has made. And we find this, in the person of Jesus and in the book we call the New Testament. Now, if we are to hear Jesus and obey him, uh, we know that this this follows the, the prediction, for example, in the law, Deuteronomy 18 and 5, which said that there was coming a prophet, a greater prophet, greater than Moses, and he is the one that must be obeyed. And so, here again in Luke, we see the emphasis on the authority and power of Jesus, which been, has been emphasized as we've been studying this uh, remarkable and wonderful book. We are blessed today to have the authoritative words of Jesus in the writings of a completed New Testament. And we can just uh, marvel at that. You know, I was thinking this morning, you know, we do, if we were Peter or Paul we don't have to go and, and get a big old bulky parchment and unroll it and read, you know. Uh, it's, it's wonderful that these men had such great memories that it all sort of was uh, imprinted on their, their hearts and their minds. But we can go and just open a book and read God's precious words without any uh, great difficulty at all. And it's so wonderful. The true disciples of Jesus will seek to hear and practice his words. Now, you know, there are some things in the Bible that you might not understand in the New Testament. And rather than saying, I don't understand, therefore, I'm not going to do it. It's much better to say, I'm going to do it. And maybe the Lord will help me to understand why he wants me to do it. Now, when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days the, uh, things, any of the things they had seen. <clears throat> now, why is this? Well, the silence that they uh, kept was in obedience to the words of Jesus. Now, in Mark 9, 9, he, it says, Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen. Till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. We might be wondering why did Jesus want this and other miracles to be not widely publicized at this time? Why did he want them to be quiet about it? Well, there are three things that that, uh, perhaps I I could suggest. The first would be to avoid premature opposition. Remember, he had many enemies, and uh, it might have stirred them to the point of premature opposition. Remember, the fulfillment of his exodus from this world was to be accomplished at Jerusalem. We just read about that, right? So uh, it couldn't happen outside of Jerusalem. So to avoid premature opposition. Secondly, to avoid a popular uprising to make him a political king. When he fed the 5,000, you remember, there was a a desire to make him uh, a king, uh, someone that could provide for them. And uh, this kind of thing was sort of an undercurrent among the people who didn't understand the fullness of his purpose. Thirdly, uh, the third reason they were to be quiet was to ensure that the disciples would proclaim the transfiguration of Jesus in a right way in the light of his coming death and resurrection. Remember, uh, the scriptures tell us, and Jesus himself told us in the Gospels that he must suffer first and then enter his glory. And after his resurrection, he reemphasizes that in Luke 24 and verse 25. And interestingly, uh, and uh, uh, perhaps uh, not so pleasant to realize, is that there's a pattern here for all who would uh, be true followers of Jesus, there's going to be some suffering in this life before the glory. There's going to be some things that are hard uh, before the, the light, eternal weight uh, that uh, is, is coming, the light uh, and, and the, uh, the joy and the blessing and the glory of heaven. And so we follow Jesus uh, now, even though there's suffering, knowing that the glory will come. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. And he says that's one reason we keep pressing on. We know there is a a greater glory coming very soon. Now, they kept this word to themselves, questioning, according to Mark 9 and 10, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Now... It was really hard for the disciples to receive the truth that Jesus had to die, that he would die. Uh, they, they found this, you know, terribly disconcerting. It follows then that uh, it was difficult for them to understand what the resurrection, what his resurrection would mean. I mean, they understood about resurrection. They understood that in the future there was a resurrection uh, of of the the godly and so on. But they they didn't understand how this could apply to Jesus. Now, how could he talk about his resurrection? But, of course, we know that uh, in a very short time they would indeed understand uh, what he was talking about when he said that he would uh, die and uh, be raised from the dead. Now, <clears throat> the, the, ex- the extra uh, thought here of death and resurrection, uh, which ends this, reminds us, I'm sure, that that is at the very heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. God's good news involves the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. That's the fullness of the gospel right there. Uh, who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. Uh, verse, uh, verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 15 defines the gospel. Uh, it says to the gospel that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. It was final, in other words and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, why did Jesus do all of this? He did these things to provide you and me and all who would believe a total forgiveness, total forgiveness of our sins and iniquities and our transgressions against the holy God, and then a new life in Christ, where we are given Christ as our own individual Savior living within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the scripture says, the assurance of glory is Christ living in us. And so if you're here today and you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, you have total forgiveness and new life in Christ, and we can celebrate that uh, this Christmas season. Now, I want to just take a few minutes to to uh, make a few remarks about that. The, uh, the first thing I'd like to say has to do with the uh, passage where it says that he pray, prayed and the appearance of his face was altered. At Christmas, we celebrate the person, the coming of the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, the fact that he uh, was transfigured and his clothes became white as the light uh, tells us that there is no dark side to the infinite, eternal creator. There's no dark side. And uh, as many of us have Perhaps enjoyed uh watching you know Star Wars and that kind of thing. Uh, we have to realize as Christians of course, that that is a uh, pantheistic dualism that in the God of Scripture and the God of the universe, there is no dark side, and so uh, that's the first thing. then at Christmas we we recognize that Jesus that God is coming. It did come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, we looked at this uh, uh, someone on the, uh, the House Fellowship last time uh, when we met uh, on Tuesday. And it's very interesting that about 700 years before Christ, Isaiah prophesied of his coming now, Isaiah seven fourteen says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a sign and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Now, uh, we mentioned uh, at the house fellowship how in, in prophecy sometimes you have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Well, in the near fulfillment, it was an amazing fulfillment uh, in in, uh, in Isaiah. Uh, but Isaiah 8.3 does not complete the fulfillment of this. This is a true virgin young woman who, and they use the word here parthenos, which is the Greek word for virgin, shall conceive and bear a son. We know this was by the... Oh, Blessed Holy Spirit coming upon her, as the scripture tells us. And so we have God incarnate, which is a very, uh, that's, that's the root idea of Christmas. God taking on human flesh without sin so that he could die uh, for sinners one day. Now it says here that uh, for us a child is given, unto us a son is born. So you have the humanity in the child given, you have the deity of Messiah, in, in the, or the child born, and in the son given, you have the deity of the Messiah. And it says, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. Now, you notice I read that a little differently from what we usually sing. We usually sing uh, the Eternal Father, but Father of Eternity is really a literal translation of those Hebrew words. And it preserves the dis- biblical distinction in the distinctions in the Blessed Trinity. Uh, God, the Son, the Messiah, is the author and possessor of eternity. He is the Father of Eternity in that sense. And his government will be fatherly in the best sense of that term. And so uh, we have before us a beautiful presentation of Messiah, his deity veiled in human flesh, but revealed for a moment on that Mount of Transfiguration where the transformation from within, a showing out of his deity, is uh, portrayed in that supernatural whiteness of his garments and of his glory shining forth. And how fitting that is, because Jesus will one day come back, and he will come back in his glorified resurrection body to establish his kingdom. So it all fits together of a piece, and it's beautiful, and we can really praise God for all of the uh, wonderful truth. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your beloved son into this dark and sinful world. That He was born of a, a virgin and uh, laid in a, a humble uh, a crib for a feeding trough so that we might realize that he stooped to the lowest position to bring uh, us to, to you, Lord bring us up to heaven thank you that he went even lower than that to the depths of the cross to suffer bleed and die for us unworthy as we are thank you Lord God for uh, this amazing time of year thank you for uh, the, the wonder and the glory of Jesus which is ours every day of week of the week and especially as we meet together to celebrate his, his death upon the cross and his resurrection we just thank you for these simple emblems, uh, the cup which speaks uh, uh, of his blood and the bread which speaks of his body. We thank you for uh, what he did in going to that cruel cross to suffer, bleed, and die for us. Thank you for these elements that speak so highly of him, and his worthy and precious name.